Jesus came so you would have life. And the Bible tells us that there's also an enemy of your soul. And this is not something you hear a lot these days. It sounds kind of like a spooky horror story. But the fact is, there is a horror story going on. And it's called Satan. There is a warrior who is going after your soul. The Bible says he, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. And his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said he came to give life. Satan is trying to take it away. Jesus says he comes to give freedom. The one who's after your soul says he comes to put you in bondage. There's a battle raging for your soul right now, and it is vital that we realize that Jesus is the only one who can give us victory in this battle that we have. Now, if you were trying to destroy people's souls, you could get them to disagree with particular ideas and beliefs and truths that the Bible teaches, or you could get them to deny that truth exists at all. And actually, that's a far more efficient way to accomplish your goal to destroy people. And I think that's the very perspective that we have to be aware of most in our society, that truth doesn't really exist, that all you've got is your limited perspective, as we've been saying this week so far. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 18? I, I want to get to the actually core passage of this whole series this week in the Gospel of John, looking at the question, what is truth? It comes from a question of someone who actually doesn't believe there's truth, from what we can tell in the way he asks his question. John chapter 18, Jesus is being beaten and tortured on his way to being crucified for the sins of the world. And this leader of Rome, who is part of this process he, he's not all for jesus going to the crosses we'll see he'll just do whatever is politically expedient and that's what happens here so john chapter 18 verse 33 has this interchange between this roman leader Pilate and jesus the savior of the world here's how it goes down help us lord john 18 33 so Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now it's important to realize when Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying that his kingdom isn't all about transforming this world and saving this world because God loves this world. What he's saying when he uses world, the word cosmos this way, you know, it's really important to realize that words can have different meanings depending on the context in which they're used. Yes, we realize this in lots of different ways. So world can be used in just a general sense, the world God made. God created the world. But it can also be used in a way that describes a system woven into the fallen world in which we live that's opposed to God, 
opposed to his ways. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not playing by the rules on the world level. I don't have a worldly kingdom. My priorities aren't the same as the world's priorities. I've got different ones. You know when we pray in the Lord's Prayer that it will be on earth as it is in heaven, that's saying that the priorities of heaven, God's priorities, will become the priorities of this world because right now they're not those priorities. And so Jesus is saying, don't judge me, don't come to me with your agenda based on worldly values. That's not how I'm operating here. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? This is asked with a sneer. It's not an honest question. It's a question of a man who sounds like he's given up on the possibility of ever figuring that out. Which is amazing because the one who is the truth is standing right next to him. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life according to his own perspective. And here he says, what is truth? And listen to what happens next. After this, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas was this infamous criminal, this insurrectionist. This guy was trying to bring down Rome, a, 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 a criminal that people knew about in all the bad stuff he did, and they choose his freedom over Jesus. You know, every time I read that, I realize how much like Barabbas I am. I went free because Jesus didn't. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was murdered and executed, and a criminal went free. I'm that criminal. I'm Barabbas. And Jesus goes to the cross instead of the criminal. So this question, what is truth, is vital for us. This is what determines everything else in our lives. So what is truth for you? Where do you find it? What's your source of truth? Everybody has one. It's usually a collection, an amalgamation, a, a, a collection of truths we've gathered from all over the place that seems to ring true and cohere with our experience. But I want to ask you, where do you go for truth? Because that'll determine everything else in your life. It'll determine your whole life. Where you go for truth and what truth you find will determine everything for you. It'll determine what your greatest needs are. Are your greatest needs social acceptance? or popularity, or academic or athletic success, or entertainment, or the ideal body, or the dream career you long for, accomplishments, I don't know what that is, it's kind of strange, I'll just keep going, all right, was that just me, or did everybody else see that too, okay, um, I've taken a lot of hits. You never know what's going on in my brain. Uh, God says your greatest need, according to his truth, is himself. 
Your greatest need is God himself. And he joyfully, lavishly, lovingly gives you himself. Because that's what you need most. That's what his truth says. All those other things can be fine. But unless you have God at the heart of it, it'll all be empty. And as the book of Ecclesiastes says, it'll all be vanity. It'll all be empty. You'll get it all. You'll get all the world offers and you'll end up with nothing of lasting value. Nothing. And and I want to tell you this hard truth from the word, but I want you to hear it from a tender heart. I love you. I care about you. And I hate that we live in a culture and all you've ever known is a culture that is packed with lies. And the fundamental one seems to be that there's no such thing as a lie because all that matters is what you make up. All that matters is what you decide is true. And so if you pull the plug on the existence of truth at all, well, Satan wins. The enemy of your soul wins. And so I want you to hear how important it is that you believe truth exists with a capital T. Not relative truth, not subjective truth, but objective truth capital t truth really exists and if you know that that's why you will find life and how you will find life and it's amazing how radically crazy we've gone with this you know in my opinion the most talented guard in the nba anybody you know i'm thinking of steph curry well he's he's by far the most talented uh uh shooter but Kyrie Irving, he's kind of, he's kind of interesting, but all right, I don't want to get into it right now, later, all right? Well, you got a good argument there, but mid-range shots aren't, anyway, um, listen, uh, Kyrie Irving is incredibly talented. He went to Duke. Kyrie Irving went to Duke University, one of the premier academic and athletic in- institutions in the country, and you know, Kyrie Irving believes the world is flat. He does. But listen, you know, there, there are people who believe that. But I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for an interviewer who asked him about that. And he said, Kyrie, I've heard you believe the world's flat. And Kyrie said, well, who's to say? You know, that's my opinion. You have your opinion. Who's to say? And I'm so thankful. Do you know what the the journalist said when Kyrie Irving said, who's to say whether the world's flat or round? He said, NASA? That's a great answer, right? That seems to be a good authority to go to to find out what the world looks like. You can understand why someone who's never been off the planet would think it might be flat, right? But it's amazing that really smart people can buy into this idea of, you know, who's to say? Everybody makes it up for themselves. Nobody really knows. But Jesus says that our knowledge of truth determines everything. Jesus says, as we've seen, if you abide in my truth, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I want you to know freedom. I want you to know the difference between truth and lies. Because if you don't, you'll never get to freedom in Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You're created to have a relationship with God. I don't want you to leave here this week if you don't have a relationship with the God who created you, your heavenly Father you desperately need. And you only find that through Jesus. And I'm not talking about just religious stuff here or 
or, or just intellectual. So I'm talking about a relationship with God that he created you to have. That's why John, the apostle John who wrote this gospel we're focusing on this week says, I have no greater joy than that my children are walking with the Lord. He's not talking about his kids at home. He's talking about the church to whom he's writing in 3 John here. He's saying those people who are walking in the truth, they're his children. And when they're walking in the truth, he gets joy from that. And I want to find the joy of knowing that you're walking in the truth and you can't walk in the truth if you don't know the truth. Knowledge really matters. The truth really matters. Everything changes when you understand the truth. Now, I want you to realize how savvy you need to be to see lies in our day because some of the most sophisticated people are telling the biggest lies. Some of the coolest people, some of the smartest people, some of the most influential people are telling lies that have quite a bit of truth in them. And I want you to realize that there's a big difference between truth and lies, even if it's packaged in an impressive way. Now, I'm not even going to say the name of this person, but um, no, I'll say the name of this person. Listen to what Thomas Sowell says. He's a brilliant man. He's an incredible man. Um, but he said, when you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. There's a big difference. I want to help you. I don't want to just tell you what you want to hear. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible actually talks about the days that are coming that I think we're in when people are going to just want to have their ears tickled. They're going to want to hear just what they want to hear. And if you say something other than what they want to hear, they won't listen to you. They'll write you off. But truth tellers are doing it for the good of people. It can make you very unpopular when you do it this way. But I, I want you to see these quotes because I want you to become sophisticated in the way you think about things people say. Now, before you react emotionally, I want you to step back and say, what is this person saying? Listen to what he says. This is a, a very influential so-called progressive Christian who wrote these things in a best-selling book. I think a healthier way of thinking about belief is to think about the kind of lives we choose to live with the words and beliefs we've been handed to us. Perhaps a more important question than what you believe about God is what you'll do with your assumptions of what God is or is not. Will you love God? Will you love your neighbor? Maybe these questions are far more important than what you believe about God or your neighbor. Maybe whether or not you, do not you do what Jesus said is more important than the language you use to describe Jesus. Language is not, just not important enough to divide over. People are more important than ideas. Love is more important than the concept of love. Now, now, hang on there. I know there are a lot of you right now, and I love you, and I know our culture's influencing you. I know a lot of you read that, and you say, oh, that's so true, that's so deep, that's so good. I can even think, I think, find things in the Bible to support that. And here's what I want you to know. There are very true things in this statement. But there are very untrue things in this statement. There are actually things in this statement that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Let me help you think about it. What's true in this statement is not actually what he's saying. What's true in this statement that I think you may be hearing is the Bible completely emphasizes the importance to connect your ideas of God and your love for God to your ideas 
that are worked out in daily life. The Bible is intensely concerned that we translate our love for God into our love for people. The practical outworking of our beliefs is an absolute non-negotiable in the Bible, yes. But that's actually not what he's saying. He's saying that what you do is far more important than what you believe. And he goes about it in a way that completely undermines everything he's saying. Let me just cut to the chase. The sentence, people are more important than ideas. What is that sentence? What is that? People are more important than ideas. Anybody know what that is? It's an idea. Yeah. Love is more important than the concept of love. What is that sentence? It's a, it's a concept. It's an idea. This word love, does it have any meaning? Is there a truth basis to that word? Because if not, you know what he's saying? Blah, 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 blah. That's all he's saying. When he talks this way, like a lot of people talk now, even when you say there's no objective truth, there's no way of explaining everything, you know what those sentences are? Objective truth statements. Ways of explaining everything. Every time I hear somebody talk like this, I want to say, why are you even talking? Stop talking. You're defeating your whole premise by talking by giving us concepts and ideas and words that we're assuming have definitions, and if they don't, why do we talk? Why do we write? But people are doing this more and more all the time. And we sit there and we listen to it and we go, oh, that's deep, man. <laughs> and it's not. It's nonsense. It makes no sense whatsoever. I don't care if it has an emotional impact that sounds deep and meaningful because it has some truth in it, but it doesn't. Look, if, you, if it doesn't really matter that much what you believe a person is, just love them, why? Why would I love them, especially when they're not very lovable sometimes? Why would I love them? If you think the per a person is nothing but the result of a blob of protoplasm that crawled out of the ocean a billion and a half years ago and somehow became a human, and if it's all about survival of the fittest, well, if that's how you think a person is defined, that's going to be really different than if you define a person as someone made by an all-wise, all-good God in his image for his glory and for the good of other people. Now you love people like you love God. Right now, do you see, you can't say just love. Well, what is love? What's a person? Who's God? If we don't define all this stuff, call the whole thing off. And it's survival of the fittest and Lord of the flies. Have you read it? It's rough. But that's where we are unless we have words that, that have meaning like love and God and people. But we don't think. We don't think, we're, we're not a thinking people anymore because we're not convinced truth matters, so we're apathetic about truth, and we flip through TikTok, numbing our minds and not going deep about things. We've got to be different. We've got to be different than this. You know, I was reading to you the importance of the Bible, and you know, I hear people say, you know, we've got to do something with all this knowledge. What knowledge? What knowledge? Let me just read some statistics to you. Uh, Americans were asked to name 
name any of the disciples. Less than half couldn't even name two. Um, 82% of Americans asked believe that the, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a Bible verse. It's not. Um, 12% of Americans thought Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Listen, over that's probably some of you. Over 50% of graduating high school seniors, over 50% of graduating high school seniors thought Sodom and Gomorrah were a husband and wife. Yeah. They asked Christian leaders, they asked Christian leaders at a Christian convention to name the Ten Commandments. What percentage of Christian leaders do you think could name all Ten Commandments? What percentage? 20, 40... 5%. Yeah, which means most of you can't name it. Now, don't spend the rest of the night saying, honor your mother and father. Keep it. Do that later. And if you don't know, it's have no other gods before me. Have no graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. There it is. But most people can't name that. Do you know? That's not why I did that. The only reason I said that is so that you would stop thinking about what they are and keep listening. So, here's it. My point is, even Christians don't know what the Bible says. We think we do, but we don't. And so I'm not saying this to discourage you or shame you. I'm saying it to, to help you realize that we buy into a media perception of ourselves as a bunch of Bible thumpers as Christians when we're not even Bible readers. And so we've really got to back up and say, wow, I, I can't believe the hype about myself. Just like we're a bunch of overzealous truth tellers and evangelists. Do you have any friends who need to say, hey, calm down? Stop talking about Jesus all the time? In-house, you know, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I just want to let you in on something. Most of us are really timid. Most of us, our problem is not being overzealous. It's being it's so timid like little mice. And so we've got to wake up to this. I could read lots more statistics to you that are discouraging, potentially, but I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to realize that this is nonsensical ways of talking. He's using concepts and ideas to undermine the reality of concepts and ideas. See? Silliness. Right? Don't think it's deep. Say, that's ridiculous. Be, be okay with saying, that just doesn't make sense. You can't do that. So... Listen to what Jeremiah 9 says. Listen how different this is. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Not, nothing wrong with those things. He's just saying, don't revel in those things. What do you revel in? That he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh. Anytime you see all caps, L-O-R-D in your English Bible, that's this wonderful word, Yahweh. The God who makes and keeps covenants and has been the great I am for all of eternity, right? He, he's Yahweh who exercises, and then he gets specific about who he is. Words filled with meaning. His loving kindness, his justice, his righteousness on earth, and he delights in these things. He has a life of affections for his characteristics. That's who we are. And in the Great Commission this morning, one of, one of the brothers talked about the Great Commandment being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The Great Commission starts with the authority Jesus has and gives us. And we go out into the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. Have truth content in your mind so you're able to live it out practically. Do you see what a ridiculous false dichotomy it is to say ideas don't really matter that much? It's just what you do. That's not how humans work. That's not how we work. If you think that's how humans work, you just need to read some history. If you don't realize that a, a Darwinist view of human beings about survival of the fittest is what leads to sending six million Jews in an incinerator. That's what it is. It's an idea about people and where their worth comes from. It's what leads to all the horrors in our day. And he's, te- he's wanting us to teach each other what he has commanded. And so we've got to realize that we are people of truth if we are followers of Jesus. And the question, the most important thing you'll ever be asked about truth is the question Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say I am? There's so much truth we need to know. He wants us to know everything he's commanded. He wants us to know the whole counsel of God's word. But what he wants us to know at the heart of it all is who he is because he's the truth, right? And so if if you want to know the truth about everything else, you you need to know the one who is the truth because bottom line, Truth is not primarily uh, just these intellectual formulations. Truth is a person. And knowing that person involves ideas and concepts and facts and information, but it's fundamentally about a person. We need to know the one who is the truth. So the question is, who do you say Jesus is? That is by far the most important question of your life. Do you believe Jesus himself when he makes claims about himself? You see, because we have faith that seeks understanding, faith in the person of Christ that leads to dependence on him and obedience to him as a true disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus who is blessed with the life and the freedom he gives. But throughout Jesus' entire ministry, people kept coming to him with their agendas for him. They kept coming to him, telling him what he better be like. And I hear people talk about God like that. Christians come and say to me, you know what, I, I will not worship a God who would ever, whatever, would ever send someone to hell, would ever condemn this behavior, would ever be that way. If that story in the Bible's true, that God's not getting my worship. As if we get to set an agenda for what God better be like if he's going to get our worship. Do you see what a complete misunderstanding of what it means to say the word God, creator, And yes, there are hard things about following the God of the Bible that don't sit right with us very often. If you're bothered sometimes by what you read in the Bible, good for you. That means you're reading carefully and honestly. I'm writing a book now, 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. And one of them is constantly evaluating everything by whether or not it resonates with me. Right? That really resonated with me. Well, is that good? Because quite frankly, quite often, I need to have God's word be dissonant toward me because I'm not always resonating with God in his ways. And so we, we've got to go to God's word wanting to hear from him, even if it forces us to be imbalanced and knocked off course, not coming to him with all of our expectations and entitlement and agendas. See, in Jesus' time, Rome was, as we said, oppressing the Jewish people, and they wanted the Messiah to come and primarily liberate them politically and militarily and financially. And Jesus keeps saying, well, that's not my job. That's not my role right now. Oh, one day I'm coming back as judge of all the earth. But right now I've come to lay down my life for the sins of the world. 
So I just want to look at a few passages in John, and then we're out. John chapter 4, would you please go there? John chapter 4 gives us a glimpse into Jesus' self-understanding in these interactions he's having with these religious leaders. John chapter 4, it's an awesome story. Anybody who thinks the Bible's boring couldn't have ever read it, because it's not. It's, an, it's the most awesome book ever. Listen to this. John chapter 4. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 19. Jesus meets this woman at the well, and she's a Samaritan, and his disciples are really upset about even going into Samaria, but he meets this woman at the well. This woman most Jews would never go near, and Jesus goes near and has an interaction with her and helps her understand the truth. And in verse 19, look what he says. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When He comes, He'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Jesus knew he was the Messiah. Jesus knew he was the one who came and blasted away at all the religious conventions and traditions that didn't align with God and his ways. See, people were fixated on exactly where you worshipped and how you worshipped. And he said, the key worship is spirit and in truth worship. And I'm the one who brings that because I'm the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. One chapter over, chapter 5, verse 1. Listen to this amazing story. Please just listen to God's word in this description of Jesus and be in awe of who he is. Help us, Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 5. After this, after Jesus heals this official son, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. There's a hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, named after this place because it's such a famous place of healing which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Can you imagine? It, it's hard to be someone with disabilities in our day. Back then, it was incredibly brutal. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. What? Has anybody ever had a cast on one of their limbs for any length of time? A month, two months? Yeah. What does that leg look like when you take that cast off? It's like, 
It's like, yeah, it's, it's atrophied. It's lost all the money. It's like some little kid's leg has been attached to my body, right? What happened to my leg? You don't use it. It atrophies. 38 years of inactivity with these muscles. And he gets up, takes up his mat, and walks. Anybody who had been in that situation normally would have to maybe take two years to learn to rewalk and, and to, to learn to walk and build those muscles up and, and get all the nutrients. He walks. And watch what happens. It's an incredible story next. Watch. Now that day was the Sabbath. Oh, no. The Sabbath was something the religious leaders would often use to oppress people, to keep their power going. And Jesus was blowing that up all the time. And here we go again. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Can you imagine? Missing the whole point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about finding rest in God. This man has finally found rest through the healing work of Jesus. And the religious leaders are opposing that God keep us from ever being those kinds of religious people. But I love what the guy says. The man who had been healed, verse 11, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. See, I'm listening to him now. I'm taking my orders from the guy who healed me. They asked him, who is the man who said you take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see your well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, listen to this, my father is working until now. And I'm working. In other words, my father's working on the Sabbath, and if my father's working on the Sabbath, so am I, because our work is the same work. And they understood exactly what he was saying. Look, this is why the Jews, verse 18, were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his own, God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus knew who he was. One more passage, chapter 6, verse 25. Listen to this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He had just fed 5,000 people. And he's realizing they're coming to them for physical bread, and that's not what he wants them to come to him for. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do? Uh, you must be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread, true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my own flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What is going on here? Jesus is saying, you come to me for physical bread, and I come to you to give you myself because I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the one you really need. My blood will give you life if you trust in me, if you believe in me. And look at the reaction. Verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, listen to what he doesn't say. Don't leave. Don't leave. What, what are you doing? Look what he says. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the, set, the twelve, do you want to go away as well? I love that. Jesus says, you know what? If you're thinking of leaving because of these hard teachings, this would probably be a good time to go. See, Jesus would have nothing to do with the wrong kind of popularity. He was not interested in being liked or being famous or being popular. He was interested in the truth that is found in him. And I love old Peter. He hits a home run this time. Listen, what does Peter say? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know what I hear in Peter's answer? Lord, this is hard. I don't think I like a lot of it. I don't understand a lot of it, but I'm betting a ranch on you. I'm betting my whole life on you. We've come to realize that you alone have the words of eternal life, and we've realized that we have nowhere else to go if we want to find life. And that's what it means to come to Jesus, on your knees, submitting to who he is, not coming with your own agenda. I can't believe how patient God is, how often we come with our agendas and impose them on him and expect Jesus to give affirmation to our agendas and our ways we want him to be and give affirmation to the way we want to be. Instead of trusting him as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone will give you freedom. He alone will give you life. But that only happens when you come to him, not telling him what he better be like, but submitting to him in joyful submission because you know that he's for you, that he only wants what's best for you, and he loves you with a love that you will never believe. You'll, you'll take it in for all of eternity how much he loves you. Heavenly Father, help us to know how much you love us. Help us to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's an enemy after our souls who wants to destroy us. Lord, help us to be on guard, realizing that we're told lies every day. Help us to know the difference between the lies and the truth, because so much around us is calling evil good and good evil. So Lord, would you help us to know you and know your truth and know what it means to be everything you've made us to be. Lord, thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you that he is everything he said he was. He's not crazy. He's not stupid. He's not a deceiver. He's Lord and God and the Savior of the world. And I pray we would all come to a deeper understanding of that this week. We pray in his name.